Welcome to Conversations with Sports Fans. I'm your host, Doug Hill, and today I'm excited to be joined by not only author Lou Friedman, who's making his third appearance on this show, but also dog musher Dick Mackey. Mackey, along with Joe Reddington Sr., was instrumental in founding the famed Iditarod sled dog race in 1973. Dick later won the race in 1978 in what is still the closest margin of victory ever by about one second over Rick Swenson and his team. Mackey has had four sons also race in the Iditarod, Bill, Jason, Lance, and Rick. Rick won it in 1983, and Lance won four straight races in 2007, 2008, 2009, and 2010. Lou is, of course, the former sports editor of the Anchorage Daily News, and he collaborated with Dick recently on Mackey's 2001 biography, One Second to Glory, and has a brand new Iditarod book out entitled Adventures on the Iditarod Trail, Fast Dogs, Freezing Mushers, and the Alaska Wild. It's a collection of stories focusing on different mushers, including Dick and his late son, Lance. It's available from Northern Lights Media and will be linked in our show notes. Dick and Lou, welcome to Conversations with Sports Fans. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Great to be here. Thank you very much, Mr. Mackey, for taking some time with us on this uh, cold winter's day, I'm sure. Um, I just wanted to, to Why ask, don't we ask you Dick how cold it is in Palmer, Alaska. Yeah, what do you got going on up well, there, Dick? Well, actually, yeah, I'll tell you what, we. We had a real cold spell for, for this part of the state, and today it's warmed up. It's above it's above zero. So for us, that's a good day. There you go. <laughs> oh, well, Mr. Mackey, if you if you could, can you take us back into the Wayback Machine and and talk about how the whole idea for the Iditarod <laughs> came to be? Well, it it all started when. Uh, uh, the woman in the historical society in Wasilla, Alaska, approached Joe Reddington Sr. and thought that we should have a race for the Alaska Centennial in 1967. And perhaps we could do it on the old Iditarod Trail, which was a uh, miner's access to the Iditarod Mining District. And so in 1966, he approached me if I would help to open up part of this old trail for an upcoming short 28-mile race over a section of that trail. And it went from there to having a long-distance race. Uh, back in those days, uh, snow machines, uh, I, I don't know, In the, I think in the, some areas they... Uh, they call it a snow goal or whatever in Alaska. Snow machines are referred to as that. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of taking over what would be the customary way of transportation with a dog team. Uh, in all the rural areas, uh, every household had to have some kind of a dog team to haul their firewood and their, and their water and then the and then in the summertime, they'd, they'd fish to feed the dogs for the winter. Well, they would they would be taken over by 
snow machines. And so we thought if we could have a race to to show uh, the significance of the sled dog, that it would help. And that was the premise for having the race. It 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 took a long time to to get it finalized and and get everyone just to, the idea that you could run a dog team over a thousand miles across Alaska. It had never been done before. Yeah, how um, I happened to be. I'm sorry, sir. Go ahead. I I just happened to be one that that joined in. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was oh, going to. Dick was a believer. He was a yes, dog marcher. Yes, I dog was, already. I was a shorter race. Yeah, I lose correct. I, I was a true believer. I I jumped in with both feet. <laughs> now, certainly back in in seventy three, you probably. Well, maybe I shouldn't say probably. Did you know what you didn't know to go out on a thousand mile journey with a team of dogs? Were you, um, how, how prepared for you, were, were you and the other mushers who ran that first year for what may or may not occur out there? No, no, no one. There were 34 of us that, that started the race and I believe, let's see, 22 of us finished. But none of us had any idea what we were getting into. Uh, we just, we were all outdoorsmen. Uh, we happened at the first first year anyway, we were all happened to be guys. And uh, uh, we were all outdoorsmen. We, we knew we could take care of ourselves. And uh, we all had experience with sled dogs. And uh, uh, we assumed that... Uh, we could we could probably do it in in ten days, and uh, uh, it didn't. It took it took uh, the winter twice that long. Took twenty days, and very few of us really had the idea of a race. It was more of a glorified camping trip to just we to see if we could make it. Uh, I think most everyone had the same idea as I did that. I didn't know if you could do it, but by gosh, I could do it. And that was your attitude anyway. <laughs> it, it, it was, no, I don't care what a person done in his life as far as outdoor activity. Uh, it, it, it was probably the greatest accomplishment uh, that a person could go through. You can, you can be a, a skier or a mountain climber or, or whatever. And, you contend with yourself. Well, now you take uh, uh, 16 or, or more sled dogs. You can't even uh, talk to them in the same language and, and take them up the trail. It's, it's quite an undertaking. And I always thought you spoke dog. What did you say? I always thought you spoke the dog language. <laughs> well, you you can try. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, you can try. It's uh, I, I don't know, Lou. You you you've observed it and seen it, and and uh, I've talked to a lot of people, and uh, uh, I have to think they have the same idea that 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 I do. It's it's just a uh, even after fifty some years, it's it's a tremendous accomplishment. Well, I think everybody who finishes 
is proud of what they've done, but I have never been given a really in-depth interview by a dog. No, this is true. Uh, all I know is that you can't make a dog run. Uh, a dog, a dog has to want to do it, and with proper training, they're, they're the greatest athletes in the world. I, I've always said that you train a you train a team of dogs all winter. When the race starts, uh, uh, you just go along for the ride. Uh, they know what they're doing, and it, you you're the guy that has to take care of them, feed them, water them, and make sure they're healthy and and happy and and uh but as far as uh as far as way how you're gonna go it's up to them not you yeah absolutely that that first year sir um you know you you referenced thinking it would take 10 days and it ended up being double logistically um you know i know that in, in the modern era now you know supplies and things are, are shipped out along the trail was there enough material and, and and supplies out there how was that from a logistics point of view to get everything out to to all of the of the teams and the and the mushers it, it was an absolute disaster <laughs> it was a disaster <laughs> because because number one none of us knew what it took to to run day after day after day after day and uh whether you were feeding your own deal fish and whatever you might be feeding uh the ralston perina company donated 20 tons of dog food and that was distributed to certain locations out along the trail and uh here uh, half a ton of dog food would show up in the village. What's this for? They had no idea. Oh, it must be for that dog race they're talking about. You know, there was, there was almost no organization. Uh, that first year we had one, one veterinarian for the entire race. We had two airplanes flying along the trail. Uh, now every checkpoint has, uh, who knows how many veterinarians and logistic support and your feed and all your supplies are flown out ahead of time. Com After the completion of the first race, the organization gave me $300 to fly the trail from Anchorage to Nome and set up the present checkpoint and trail breaking system the checkpoint system is still used today. The trail bacon system used to be done by individuals along the way. Now we have our own machines and they go along and make sure the trail is in and groomed and properly marked and on and on and on, which we never used to experience the first few years. It's a, it's a completely, the only the only thing that's the same today as it was 50 years ago, you're still going to take a dog team from one end of the state to the other. Other than that, there's very few similarities. I can certainly appreciate that and understand, you know, why it would have evolved. Um, so quite literally, um, you know, the group of 34 of you that first year were, were blazing trail. Now, while there may have been a trail 
there, you were kind of establishing what the future of this race was going to look like, um, you know, 50 years later. So how, how proud of you are, how proud of yourself and, and your colleagues are you of that fact? I think there's only, uh, there's only about half a dozen of us that, uh, that uh, are still upright on this earth that ran that first year. And uh, I know we're all very proud of being a part of it. We're, we're proud of the fact that it's continued all these years. And me personally, I had four sons that followed in my footsteps, and they're all Iditarod completers. Uh, that's something that I personally am very proud of. Yeah, you're. Um, I would have to think you have to be considered the first family of of this race. Are you not? Well, there there are. Uh, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of there's there's a lot of participants in the race, but there are three families that perhaps are families that are perhaps outstanding. The Reddington family, of course, and one of the grandsons of Joe Senior happened to have won the race last year for the first time. And uh, there's the CB family, and Dan CB ran the first year. Uh, he's still he's still amongst us, and uh, his son and grandson have, have had a fabulous uh, record. Uh, as far as uh, the Mackey family, uh, I won it. Rick won it, and Son Lance won it four times, and and uh, and Jason, who was the youngest, has run it several times and has entered to win it to run it again this year. Oh, that's the terrific! Family, Doug is uh, yeah very much uh, active and uh, participating, and uh, Mitch CV won the race three times and. His son Dallas has won it five times and is equal to Rick Swenson as the record holder and is going for the record this year. So it's Dick's yep, got it yep. right there. There's three families that are sort of the uh, royalty of the Iditarod, the Mackeys, the Seavies, and the Reddingtons. Is, you know, I'll, yeah, I'll, well, I'll... I'm. Go ahead, I'm sir. I'm pretty proud of it. <laughs> As, yeah, as I'm, you sh- I'm pretty proud of the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> as as you should be. And I guess that begs the question, um, did your sons take to it naturally? Was there any um, foisting of it upon them? Or were they just kind of around it all their lives and just wanted to do it? Yeah, they they all started out with a with a little kid's pail in the in the dog lot, you know. And uh, I, I never, I never had a dog that I didn't, that I didn't trust my kids to be around. And and uh, uh, when they were just toddlers, they were, they were in the dog lot, and uh, and they grew up uh, running all the the junior races and and worked their way up through the ranks. And like any older teenagers, you know, they uh, they finally got to the point where they were more interested in the girls than they were dogs and, and, uh, ended up, uh, married and having their own families. And, and then, uh, if they had gotten away from dogs, got right back into it again, as soon as they could, you know? So it was just a, it was just a natural thing growing up and, 
in doing your doing your thing and and uh the only one that was different was was son bill uh he he grew up uh, running the one doggers and three doggers and worked his way all the way up through the juniors then he got into giving tourist rides uh overnight trips in the brooks range and running a trap line and he he wasn't competitive he didn't he didn't want to care about going on with races and then when his brother rick won in 1983 that that picked him up and and so in 1984 he took his trap line team and and decided he was going to do it and so he proudly has the patch and belt buckle to this day yep you should clarify what being a kid walking around with a children's tail meant. That was picking up dog poop, right? And like doing fire chores. Yeah, you know, they, they of course, they'd always pick their dog, you know, and uh, there'd be a hundred sled dogs out there in the, in the dog lot. And, and But they always had to have their dog. And of course, they'd go out there and, and and feed them and and pet them and take care of them and and then but they just they just grew up in the dog lot just just like uh, uh, any farm kid would grow up around the farm animals you know that's fascinating um, can you talk to us a little bit Mr Mackey about your 1978 race against um, uh, what Rick Swenson <laughs> yeah Rick Swenson well. First off, I gotta I gotta tell you, he was twenty years younger than I. I was the old man of the Iditarod back in those days, and and I'm the old man of the Iditarod today. As far as that goes, I'm ninety one years old. <laughs> but but anyhow, uh, uh, it's it's tough. He was a he was a big, big tall husk, real husky guy, and he he was a good dog musher. He was the defending champion. And uh, I had I had been into the organizational part of the Iditarod more than I was into the training part, and I finally I had essentially the same team, and uh, it was my sixth year in 1978, and I went to the went to Joe Reddington, and and I told him that uh, I'm I'm going to back off a year and and just do some training and see if I could win this thing. And uh, I knew that the only way I was going to do it was to was to be a shadow of Swenson. And uh, that's exactly what happened. We we were never more than 100 yards apart for 800 miles. And uh, and we, we were friends, but we were tough competitors too. I mean, neither one of us would give an inch, but yet would smile while we did it, you know. And uh, so he he had lead dogs that that he could steer like an automobile, and and I had a I had one dog that he could stay on the trail pretty good, and the other one you'd you'd think uh, he was blind, he'd just take off any old place, but he was the one that set the pace. And so we we raced like I say for for six hundred miles, and then we got onto the front street of Nome, which is a mile long. And uh, I knew that that was the only chance I had was to not get in trouble 
was to see if I could beat him that last mile. And that's the, the, the crowd was just hysterical. I mean, they were just going absolutely nuts. And, uh, we came running down the street. We both had all kinds of problems. And, uh, I finally crossed the, the finish line. Uh, my leaders crossed the finish line and I went to fall in the sled. I was running full bore out of breath and I went to fall in the sled and I missed the sled and fell flat down onto the street. And of course, everybody thought I had a heart attack, but it was bedlam for a few minutes. But uh, my team crossed the finish line one second in front of his and I was declared the winner. Wow. Um, now, Lou, I know you've, you've done some research into this one a little bit and you've written about it a lot. I'd love to get your perspective on, on that race and, and just where it is in the, in the history of sled dog racing. I'm guessing it has to be one of the closest long distance races ever, if not the closest ever, right, Lou? Absolutely. I mean, you're never going to see a, a, a thousand mile race decided by like swimmers races with tenths of seconds or hundreds of seconds. There have been some other Iditarods that were decided by just a small number of seconds, but nothing can compare to this, this one second. Year. I think the yeah, I think the closest uh, Iditarod race ever was about two minutes, something like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, which is close enough when you think about it. I mean, over a thousand miles, that's not a whole lot of distance of separation. And Unbelievable. You know, the scene when, you know, at any finish, everybody, there's a siren that goes off and it announces that the leader, the winner is coming down the street. So everybody who's, if it, whatever time of day or night it is. And so anybody who's in bed sleeping, gets out of bed and goes out to the street. Anybody who's having a beer in the bar goes out in the street. And so everybody lines up, you know, five people deep to cheer on the winner when they come in. So it's a, it's always a wild scene, but they never see two people on the street like that in first place. <laughs> no, it was a, it, it was a crazy deal. No doubt about that. <laughs> I didn't have much time to enjoy it. <laughs> And was that I, I, if I'm reading correctly, was that your last um, Iditarod, Mister Mackey? No, uh, the on? following year, okay. the the that was '78, and then in 1979, uh, I was the president of the Iditarod and 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 flew the trail as a judge, uh, and and at the same time, I was the advisor for a film crew covering from the BBC in England. And then I went, I went over to London for two weeks to, to help uh, uh, work on the recording and stuff of the, of the picture. But I, and then in 1980, I decided to run again and I got injured and ended up in the hospital. And so that took care of that. And then uh, I went up to the Northern part of Alaska I uh, started a business up there, and uh, and then in 1985, I got out of dogs. In 1985, I bought Joe Reddington's team in Nome. His 16 dogs that he ran to Nome, 
I purchased those and ran again in 1987, and it was a disaster. Uh, uh, we went from where I lived 60 miles above the Arctic Circle, and we started a truck stop servicing the the trucks going to the oil fields at Prudhoe Bay. Yeah. And we lived we lived in temperatures of 50 and 60 below zero all winter. And I knew taking the team down to the Anchorage climate, which might be cold by by people down in some states, but for Alaska, it's it's the it's the banana belt of of central Alaska, and, and uh, uh, went from sixty below zeros to uh, maybe twenty above zero, and so I went down a week ahead of time, and that wasn't enough. The very first day, they they got heat stroke. Can you believe that? And wow. and my team got my team got really sick, and uh, I got about halfway in the race and uh, ran into Joe Reddington, and uh, he was having he was having real problems, and he's going to scratch. And I said, "Hey, Joe, instead of scratching, let's let's just go with these tail enders, and they really don't know what they're doing, and see if we can help them." And uh, he said, "All right, well, I'll I'll go along with that, but this is the last time I'm going to run this thing." Well, it wasn't. He, he he, it was the last time I ran, but he he did it. I think a couple of more times after that, but so we did. We stayed with the tail enders and and tried to give them some some pointers on perhaps helping them for the next year, you know. That's pretty magnanimous of you, sir. Yeah. It, it uh yeah, it made you made you made you feel good even even though our race wasn't going good. Yeah. Lou, you were Joe gonna say Reddington, something? I was gonna say I think Joe Reddington did his last race when he was eighty years old. Yeah, yeah, he did. You he know my my dad passed away the very first day of the first race in in 1973 and my mother got a hold of the race marshal I don't know how she's also passed away now but uh got a hold of the race marshal and told him that I was not to know that my dad passed away until I finished the race and no and uh and uh and that was the way it was. Uh, and Joe was was my senior by oh, I don't know twelve years or something. But uh, he he became he he became my dad, and we were we were very close. Yeah, we uh, we spent a lot of time on a lot of trails together, and spent a lot of time together when we weren't on trails. Yeah, he was he was quite the guy as far as the. As far as the Iditarod, uh, he he just he lived it. He slept it. He he lived it all day. He lived it all night. It never left his mind. He was always talking dogs and long distance races, which became the Iditarod. And then when we finally are going to get it off the ground, somebody's got to be the general, and he was. Uh, I like to think that I was his right arm, but. He was the general, and I was one of his deputies. 
Well, it sounds like a very special relationship that the two of you had. And and I can pick up on that, not just with you and Mr. Reddington, but but the whole, I think, mushing community, by and large, there is a, a, a kindred spirit. Would that be an accurate assessment? Well, you know, he he suffered ter- he suffered terribly with cancer, and uh, he thought it was in remission. He was training for an upcoming race, and then it it returned on him. And uh, we were living uh, in the Fairbanks area then, and we got a call from his wife and and said, uh, uh, "Dick, you better get down here and see Joe." And we went down there, and his son was essentially taking care of him and and uh, uh my wife and i showed up and and uh joe says uh uh help me get dressed i'm going out in the dog lot and he was told no you're not and he said yes i am dick's here we're going in the dog lot and uh it's the last time he was in the dog lot we sat out there on the bench i got pictures of it of of he and my wife and I, and we just talked dogs. And uh, he only last, he only lasted a few days after that. Well, that must have been okay. pretty important for him to get out there one more time with you. That's that's very special. Yeah, just, just imagine. Just, just imagine. Here's one of the greatest sporting events in the world. It's over 50 years old now. Still going strong. You know, Dick mentioned it's, uh, it's, Joe's grandson Ryan is the defending champion right now, and uh, the winner of the Iditarod these days gets receives as part of his prize a massive trophy, which is a <laughs> oversized bust of Joe Reddington, and it is it looks huge. And it turns out it's even heavier than it looks. I was at the Reddington household last summer. That's uh, his son, Ramey, and uh, his, and Ramey's wife, Barb. And Ryan was there. And th- Ryan told me how when he won the race and they brought the trophy home, they put it on a scale and it weighed 101 pounds. Yeah, it's a, like, it's a beautiful thing probably has to stay on that table. <laughs> yep. Uh, yep. Yeah. Uh, I think I think the that particular trophy is the same every year now. And I think that uh Sun Lance won ninety seven, eight, nine, and ten. And the trophy that particular trophy, I don't think, came out the first year he won. I think it was the second year he won. Yeah, and it wasn't the, always and there. The no, my my trophy, I can I can hold up over my head in one hand. My hand head would just hold it in one hand. <laughs> uh, this one and, you can't do that. A, and then when yeah, it's got, Bar- it's, Barb, Ryan's mother, was so proud when that. He had won it for the Reddington name that pretty much all last summer or since from March on, anybody who came to the house, she made them pose for a picture with the trophy. So oh, she yeah. put them all and she I, put them I, all I, on Facebook. So and she, she went to the Reddington that. house 
you were going to get a picture taken with the trophy. Yeah, she she still does that, Lou. <laughs> okay, I just haven't yeah. been back in a few months, but I I had my picture taken and put on Facebook a couple times. One with Ramy and one with Ryan. Yeah, there's no greater promoter promoter of the Iditarod than Barb Reddington. No, <laughs> she's so I, she's talking Iditarod twenty four hours a day. I swear. <laughs> I have uh, one more question for you, Mr. Mackey, and I want to be respectful of your time, certainly. Um, I, I know you've run the race, certainly, as, as a musher. You've flown it. You've established the trail. You, your history with it is is really deep. Um, so if someone is a wants to go in and try to experience it, what is your recommendation for them? Should they go to the start, the ceremonial start? Should they try to make their way to Nome? Where is the best spot to really capture the feel of this race? Probably what they what is called the ceremonial start in Anchorage, because uh, people come from all over the from all over the state, and that's where all the people fly in from. Uh, well, literally, uh, countries all over the world just to see the start of the race, and. They have what they call the ceremonial start, and it goes for 13 miles. And uh, you can you can bid uh, to to ride in the second sled. They there's always a handle that goes that 13 miles because it's on the city streets and trails. And just so somebody should have some problems, they got they got adequate help. And then that's on Saturday. And then Sunday, the restart is 70 miles north of Anchorage in a town called Willow. And from there, the teams disappear into the wilderness. But I would think that if you're going to experience, you, you have to see the start of it to get the feel of the whole thing. And believe me, it's a, it's a celebration. It's, a, it's just thousands of people. Uh, all along those 13 miles of trail and uh, uh, you can it's so easy to to fly in and out of Anchorage and and that would be the time to do it there's plenty of hotel space and stuff like that if you don't stay with friends that you know and uh, uh, I mean everything just comes with screeching halt to, to see the start of the of the Iditarod and then if you if you're fortunate enough to to go to the end of it, uh, that takes a, some planning because you don't know exactly how long it's going to last. And it's very difficult to get housing in Nome. It's very limited. And uh, and so are the flights going to Nome also. But, but for for a person down in the in the States that, that wants to see what this thing is all about, uh, I would certainly recommend the ceremonial start, and then if you're fortunate enough to, the next day to to go to the restart in Willow, that that'd be the way to do it. Very good. That's a fantastic recommendation. Thank you for that, sir. Um, I'm going to turn it back to you for a second, Lou. If we if we can, we referenced your new book at the top, and I would love for you to give uh, give our listeners a little overview of of what that has in store for them if they choose to go and pick it up 
from uh, from the bookseller? Over the years, and it's been more than 30 years of it, I have written four of these such books that are collections of, uh, I did write mushers telling their favorite stories of the trail. Um, this one's called Adventures on the Iditarod Trail, Fast Dogs, Freezing <clears throat> Mushers, and the Alaska Wild. And um, sometimes it's about misadventures, the things that happen with people falling through the ice and recovering from that and losing their team. And others, uh, I, I think I talked to the mushers, uh, some that I talked to for the first time, I think I got them to be a little more reflective about what the race means to them and how challenging the race is and, and what they think of as the meaning of the race, sort of the way uh, Dick described it a little while ago where he talked about the, uh, you know, it's about the most challenging thing you can do um, to spend, you know, 10 days, 15 days uh, in the Alaska wilderness, soaking up the scenery, guiding the dog team and, and, uh, traveling across you know the state and have it be a competition as well as an adventure great stuff so where, where can folks get it again lou well the publishing company is uh, northern light media um in wasilla alaska i believe you can get it through amazon okay uh, I'm pretty sure that it's it's out there um uh, and uh you know, certainly in bookstores in Alaska is where it'll be coming. It's it's pretty new, so it may not have arrived in in those places, and probably not in Michigan. <laughs> but <laughs> online, online, yeah. it, it would be ready. It'd be very good, um, Mr. Mackey. Any final thoughts for us before we uh, bring this to a close? Well, um, I want to thank you for for having this podcast and putting it out there, Doug. Uh, uh, it's a, yeah, you seem to, it does not cover that often down there in the, in the lower 48 and it, it's, it's too bad at one time, ABC wild world of sports covered it, but it's one of those things that it's hard to cover from start to finish. And, uh, uh, you don't really get the whole idea of it if you just cover the finish. So that kind of petered out over the years. But uh, this is one of the greatest sporting events that uh, that you can possibly uh, follow. You know, uh, you can follow it on the computer now. They have a they have a tracker that every musher carries and lets you know where each one is at any given moment the whole way. But you know, it's a it's a great it's a great thing. I don't know how much more time you got, but when you you're standing behind a team of dogs and you look at this distant mountain range in front of you and you think, oh, my God. And next thing you know, you turn around a couple of days later and you're back, you look back and there's that mountain range that you looked at forward a few days ago and now it's behind you. It's, it's an amazing thing. You, you, you're just a speck on, on this earth, you know. Very well said, sir. Very well said. Um, well, I can't thank you both enough. This has been um, you. A, a real pleasure. Thank you. Conversations with Sports Fans is a production of the Sports Fan Project. Our theme music is, fittingly, entitled Wooden Championships by Lobo Loco. 
please visit our website at thesportsfanproject.com for more information and to contact us. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with other sports fans you know and invite them to give it a listen.